Our scripture reading this morning may be found in Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8. Romans 8, we are beginning to read at verse 28, where we read the word of God as follows. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I'd like to call your attention, first of all, here to the fact that Paul is so very, very confident. He says, we know. He doesn't say we were told. He doesn't say, I think so. It could be that way. Let's hope so. But with confidence, he says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And then in verse 29, where Paul begins with the word for, he gives his reason why he can be so very, very confident, and why we too can be so very, very confident that all things work together for good. For, he says, whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him that loved us. For I am persuaded, there you have that same confidence again, I am persuaded, I am thoroughly convinced, he says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as noted on the bulletin, 
I'd like to call your attention to verses 29, 30, and 31, where we read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? When, beloved, we were in Jamaica the first three months of this year, serving our churches on the mission field that we have on that island. The morning service at Cave Mountain on March 14 was coming to a close. I had preached the sermon that morning. The congregation had sung from the Psalter. And we were waiting for the presiding elder to pronounce the benediction. But in Jamaica, you know, they do things very informally. And when the presiding elder begins to pronounce the benediction, the entire congregation joins in and recites that benediction with him even as in some of our churches the creed of our Christian faith is pronounced in unison. But before this presiding or leading elder could begin the benediction, one of the other elders stood up and very informally he asked me to tell him and the congregation what Arminianism is and what the Arminians believe and teach. And if I may amplify a bit, his reason for that question, he said, was that since we as churches, that is, our churches here in the States, had asked them to sign a document promising not to visit with other churches and not to allow other churches to visit them and have their minister on their pulpit. And other churches, of course, means those other than the Protestant Reformed churches in Jamaica. The reason we ask that of them is that we wanted to keep false doctrines from off their pulpits. And quite naturally, also, we were desirous that the congregation itself would not be subjected to and have presented to it heresies. And so this particular elder asked what Arminianism is and what the Arminians believe and teach so that they could answer these congregations outside that wanted to visit them 
And they could also explain to their neighbors why they were Reformed and not Armenian. Well, I could have told him that morning. I could have, in brief, given him the main points of what Arminianism is and teaches. I decided not to. And that for various reasons. In the first place, I had just preached a sermon to them. I wanted them to go home with the positive truth of that sermon. And not with something negative of revealing the errors in Arminianism. What is more, I did not think that this was a psychological sign to do so. The hands of the clock, it was a morning service, the hands of the clock were reaching towards one o'clock in the afternoon already. And although they are accustomed to two, three, four hour services, the preaching that they have is very superficial and it doesn't take much concentration. And I didn't think that their attention span was sufficient to delve into something as serious as to answer that question. And so I suggested to this elder that I would come back in two weeks. I was scheduled anyway to preach there March 28 in the morning. And that would be my farewell sermon since the next day we were getting ready to return home. I suggested to him that instead of answering him now in the congregation, I would preach a sermon. And in that sermon, I would show him from Scripture the errors of Arminianism. And I would also supply all those who could read with a document listing on the left side column uh, the points uh, that the Arminians present, and on the other right-hand column, the Calvinistic truth, the truth of Scripture with abundant proof from Scripture. Well, he agreed to that. And so that next Sunday I came there, that was March 28 in the morning, I preached exactly on this text. And I'd like to call your attention to that text this morning. I don't intend to preach it to you word for word like I did there. Although they are not simple people as far as their mental abilities are concerned, doctrinally they are. They have keen minds, but they are very ignorant of doctrinal concepts and the like. But I would like to, I think it's good for us to be reminded and to see once again, the richness of the truth that God has given us. I think it's well for our young people. I think it's well for our children to grasp a bit of the tremendous difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, between what the Word of God says of our salvation and what is spouted from many, many pulpits and over radios and and is printed on the page as uh, to the way of salvation. My theme I borrow from the canons of Dortrecht. In the first head of doctrine, in the second half, which deals with the rejection of errors, 
In Article 2, the canons call that which we read here in verses 29 and 30 the golden chain of salvation. I'd like to call your attention then to the words of our text under that theme, the golden chain of salvation. I would call your attention, first of all, to the work for which that golden chain was designed. In the second place, the certainty that this golden chain will accomplish that work. And finally, the comfort that there is in all this truth for us today. Now, as far as the work is concerned, uh, let me call your attention to the fact that we have here in verses 29 and 30 five separate elements. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. I want you to understand that those five elements are the five main parts of salvation. I know we often add three more, dogmatically speaking. Our seminarians in the seminary are taught that salvation is applied to us in five steps. Regeneration, calling, faith, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Adding then regeneration, faith, and sanctification. I'd like to have you remember, however, in the first place, that when we speak of the six steps of the application of salvation, we're doing just exactly that, speaking of the application of that salvation to the elect sinners. There's more to it than that. There is that which goes behind and outside of us. There is that, for example, as you find in the text, God's foreknowledge, God's predestination. That's not the application, but nevertheless, that's also part of our salvation. In the second place, I'd like to point out that the three elements that are not listed here, namely regeneration, and Scripture certainly teaches that. Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, except a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. The element of faith, we read in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith. So faith is certainly part of that salvation. And as far as sanctification is concerned, you may find that also in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, particularly the connection between the two verses. Paul writes, According as he hath chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And then, in love having predestinated us. But, note, we are chosen that we should be holy. There's our sanctification. But these three elements, regeneration, faith, and sanctification, which are not mentioned in our text, are nevertheless implied in the five elements that we do have here. Regeneration and faith are implied in that calling. Sanctification is implied in that glorification that is mentioned. Well, let's remember that. All these five elements together then constitute 
the salvation that God has prepared for us in Christ. To try to make that plain to these doctrinally simple minds of the Jamaicans, I call their attention to a tree and to the fact that a tree has also five main parts. There's, first of all, the roots. And although you can't see those roots because they're under the ground, they're there, all right, and they belong to the tree. Even as you and I cannot see God's foreknowledge, you and I cannot see God's predestination, but they're there, and without them there's no salvation. So a tree has roots, a tree has a trunk, a tree has its branches, a tree has its leaves, and a tree has its fruit. And even then again, that fruit, first of all, is a little blossom, a little bud. And so we can speak, in we, when we do presently, of glorification. We also speak of sanctification, which is the blossom, before the fruit is there. It belongs to it. It's, it's implied in it. Well, let's look once now at these five elements of that salvation. In the first place, we have the element of God's foreknowledge. And by that, we must understand that before, that's the before of four, before the foundation of the world, God knew certain people in love. That's what foreknowledge means. It means that God knew us in his love. The Arminian says, no, God's foreknowledge means that God knew before the foundation of the world what we would do. God knew that certain people would believe. And so God chose those people because he saw ahead of time that they're going to believe. That's not the scriptures. In the first place, God does not learn anything. You and I can learn. God never finds anything out. You and I do. But the minute you say that God learns something, the minute you say that God found something, you deny he's God. You do then you're, then you're taking the position that something outside of God did something, and then God sees it. And then he learns it. He finds out about it. There's something there besides God then in the beginning. That's not the scripture. Besides, in that verse I just read to you a moment ago, notice this. According as he hath chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now notice in love having predestinated us. So that that foreknowledge does mean exactly that God knew us in his love before he predestinated us. And he predestinated us exactly because he knew us in his love. Or you have a similar statement in Matthew 5 in that Sermon on the Mount of Jesus when he speaks to those that in the judgment day shall say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in thy name and didn't we do that in thy name? Then he says, depart from ye, me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That means I never loved you. I never knew you in love. 
And so for that first part of our salvation, we must take the position that the foreknowledge of God means that he knew a people in love from before the foundation of the world. These, the text says, he predestinated. That he predestinated them means that he determined their destiny. The pre means before again. Destination means he determined before the foundation of the world their everlasting destiny, their destination. Whether that will be in all the glories of heaven or whether it will be all the torment and agony of hell. God predetermined the destiny of all men and of all angels. Here again, the Armenian says, no, it's not true. All God did in his predestinating power is to choose a condition. He didn't choose people. He simply chose a condition. And if people will only meet and fulfill that condition, then he will elect them. And because in his foreknowledge he saw that some people were going to fulfill that condition, he chose. That, of course, is not the scripture's view. In the first place, take note of the fact that Paul speaks here of whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate, so that that predestination is very closely connected with the foreknowledge. And Paul does not say that God foreknew what we would do. It says that God knew us. And as I said a moment ago, that means he knew us in love. But turn once now to Romans 9, verses 11 through 13. That very well-known passage where we read that before the children were born, and before they could do good or evil, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. No condition. No condition that we are not elected, we are not reprobated because of some uh, foreknowledge of God to see that we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And certainly we are not predestinated on the condition that we fulfill uh, the call of God to believe. Besides, we read in the scriptures that names, names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And names always refer to persons. So when God wrote names in the Lamb's book of life, he did not put that down there as works. It wasn't that uh, there were certain works that they did and therefore they are elected. God chose individuals, not a condition, God chose individuals in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And by that call of God, we must understand the irresistible call that always has its effect, namely, to bring us to spiritual life 
and through the activity of thinking. I said a moment ago that these two are implied in the call of the eye. Because when God calls, he doesn't simply speak. He doesn't simply make known a desire. You may call your children home for supper, or you may call them out to uh, practice on the piano, or whatever else it may be, call, call them home to do their schoolwork. Then you simply express to the child, it's a command, right? But you express to the child the desire that you have. God doesn't simply do that. He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. He said, let there be light. He called to the light, and it came. That's what he does to those whom he foreknew in love and predestinated in Christ. He calls them to life. He calls new spiritual life into them. He causes them to be born again. And he calls them to the act of faith. He says, believe. And he calls in them the power to make them believe. Here the Armenian makes a big distortion. The Armenian says, no, God's call is nothing less and nothing more than an invitation, an offer. He offers salvation. Because he saw ahead of time that some would believe, because he predestinated a condition to be fulfilled, now he invites people to fulfill that condition, and then in time he's going to elect them. certainly isn't true. You insult the living God with that. God invites. God helplessly stands there pleading and begging and coaxing, won't you accept my salvation? But God, he can't do that. He spake and it was done, we read. He commanded and it stood fast. In Isaiah 55, we read that his word never returns to him void. An invitation would. What is more, of course, if God only invites sinners, extends an invitation to them to be saved, those who deny, who turn down the invitation haven't sinned. You don't sin, beloved, when you deny, when you turn down, when you reject an invitation. You can invite me to your birthday party. And I can say, well, I have something else scheduled that day. Uh, sorry, but I can't come. Or I might even say, I uh, should stay off sweet and the like, so I'm not coming because I can't eat these things. I, I, I shouldn't do that. I may hurt your feelings, but I haven't sinned. But the minute someone in authority commands me, if a policeman tells me to pull over to the side of the road and I don't do it, I sin. And I'll certainly get a ticket. God always commands and he says, believe. He doesn't invite, he doesn't coax, he doesn't plead, he doesn't beg. If I may put it that way, God does not abdicate his position of being God. 
But the, uh, the Armenian says, well, he simply invites, he coaxes, pleads, and he begs. Now, before you say to me outside of church, yes, but doesn't the canons of Dort speak of Christ being offered? That's right. You will find that word offer in the, cat in the canons. But you mustn't forget in the first place, the canons were written in Latin. And that word offer there is used in the root meaning, the basic meaning of the Latin preposition and verb to present. Abfero, which means to carry to or bring in front of. And that's all the canons mean when they speak of Christ offered in the salvation. Christ is presented before the unbeliever. Christ is presented before the reprobate as well as before the elect. No invitation. To those foreordained, foreknown by God, for those predestinated, God calls and realizes his purpose. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And that he justified us means that he blotted out every bit of our sin. That he atoned, made atonement for our sin. The Armenian says, no. He didn't atone for our sins. He only made atonement possible. He died so that everybody in the world might have a chance to be saved. If you only fulfill that condition. That's the Armenian position. Only made it possible. But what did Jesus cry out on the cross? Did he say, I have made it possible? Or did he cry out triumphantly, it is finished? The latter, of course. Salvation has been created. Look, look, look at the first verse. I didn't read that in the chapter. But look at the first verse of this eighth chapter to the Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation. Paul doesn't say, there's a possibility that you can get away from that condemnation. No, no, no. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Justification means that our guilt is removed every single bit. God has erased all the marks against us in his book. The blood of Christ has covered it all. The blood of Christ has erased it. Our guilt is gone. Completely, everlastingly gone. That's the truth. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in time, that glorification consists exactly in this, that God glorifies your and my soul. That sanctification. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. That means our soul is cleansed. We receive in that soul a new holy principle of life that enables us to walk in sanctification. In principle, we are. And that's why Paul, in his epistles too, addressing the church, says he calls them saints. 
holy ones. Now, as I said a moment ago, all these five parts together are our salvation, is our salvation. You can't leave one out. You don't have salvation unless you have all five. And so, the work exactly for which this golden chain has been designed by the living God is exactly to save you and me to the uttermost. To save us from hell. Listen once to what the psalmist declares in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Notice verse 2. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. Now in the Hebrew, we read, He brought me up also out of a noisome pit. Not a horrible pit. It's horrible, all right. But the noisome part is very uh, expressive here. He means, uh, the psalmist means here, all the noise of the crying and the wailing and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. A horrible pit. Hell! Salvation exactly lifts you and me out of that horrible pit, that miry clay. Or again, if you will, let me go to Psalm 69, uh, the first few verses too. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. He's speaking of quicksand. Quicksand that you, you can't get a footing. And you keep on going farther, and the, fa- the more you struggle, the faster you're going to go down under it. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow. Destruction. And so the golden chain of salvation is that means of the living God whereby he reaches down to us in that horrible pit of hell in the midst of all the destructions, the miseries, the woe that we deserve. And he lifts us and pulls us all the way to the glory of which I text people. Whom he did for no, he glorified. And what is that glory? Listen, the text says it. For whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Try to fathom that once beloved. In the Psalms, so often you read the word Selah. And that word Selah means stop and think this over. We'll do that once. Let me say Selah here once. We are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. The most glorious creature in the whole world is God's Son in our flesh. Crucified and died for us, raised from the dead, and exalted to indescribable We'll be like him. Predestinated to be just exactly like his glorious son. In all his spiritual beauty, in all the wonder and beauty of his resurrected, glorified, heavenly body. 
That's it. That golden chain God has devised and designed in order that we who are in the noisome, horrible pit are ready to be consumed and be in everlasting destruction. He's pulled us. He's pulled us out. The one chain is in God's hand of uh, way back in that eternal foreknowledge. The other end of that chain is in hell to lift us, pull us up out of the miry clay. Yeah, we sing that too. I should have had you sing that this morning. I waited for the Lord most high and he inclined to hear my cry. He took me from destruction's pit and from the miry clay. Upon a rock he set my feet and steadfast made my way. You sure that that golden chain can do that though? All the way from hell to heaven? All the way from horrible destruction to everlasting indescribable bliss? Yes. Because a chain in order to do its work has three requirements. In the first place, all the links in that chain must be strong. The saying goes that a chain is no stronger than its weakest link. If you've got a chain, as we have here, a chain of five links, and if four of those links are good, strong steel, but one of the chains is a, a soft piece of copper or a piece of cord or string or rope, the minute you go in to pull on that chain, is going to break right by that weakest link. A chain to do its work must have all its links strong enough for the task for which it is used. That's where the Arminian falls down. That's why we should be very careful. You, you young people remember that too. You children too. Arminianism has one link. At least. They're all, they're all weak as far as, as I presented it to you a moment ago. The links as presented by the Arminian. They're all weak. But there's one particular that becomes very plain. In the chain of salvation of which the Armenian believes and which he preaches, there's one link there that you and I have to meet. And that link is that you have to accept Christ. That link is that you and I have to believe. Yeah, as Billy Graham says it too. You can be a born-again Christian if you only ask for it. You've got to ask first. You're not going to be born again until you ask God. Well, you're never going to ask God because you're spiritually dead. Dead people don't ask for anything. But our golden chain of salvation is able and certainly will do the work exactly because every single one of those links is forged by the living God. In every single one of those links, He works. In the second place, a chain in order to pull someone out of the miry clay requires on the one end 
a force, a power, an engine, a motor, a beast, or whatever it might be, with sufficient strength to uh, extricate from that mire, from that quicksand. You can have a chain that's got tremendously long, strong links in it. They can all be of the best steel you can find, the strongest material you can find in the world. But if you put that chain in the hand of a little child, and you've got, you got a truck or a car that got stuck out in the field in the mire, and maybe your tractor out there, and then you get another tractor, uh, you'll have to get another tractor to pull it out and a more powerful tractor. But if you put that chain in the hand of a little child and you say, now, here's a good chain, a strong chain. Now you pull it out. How far is that car or that truck or that wagon going to come out of that mire? What do you need? What is required is a power that is able to use that chain. And by means of that chain, to pull out completely. There again, you know, you have the Armenian error. Some of us are work. Put the chain in our hand. You, you accept. You've got to pick up that chain. And you've got to pull yourself out. No, no, not all the way, but at least you have to show God that you want to be pulled out and then he'll do the rest. But 99% is God's, they'll say, but there's 1% is yours. Well, it's going to break right by that 1%. And that 1% is going to spoil the whole business. In the third place, not only must you have a chain whose links are strong all the way through, not only must you have on the one end a power able to extricate out of that clay, that mire, that quicksand, The other end of that chain has to be firmly attached to the object that's going to be pulled out of the mire. You can't, for example, when you have a tractor out in the field that got stuck in the muck or is up to its, wheel, up to its uh, axle in mire and, and clay, you can't have a man sit on that tractor and hold that chain. Why that, that more powerful tractor that's on the dry ground that's going to do the pulling will pull him right off the wagon, will pull him right off the tractor. Mm, good. That chain must be fastened, must be attached firmly to the tractor, to the object that you're going to pull out. And that's the beauty of the truth. And that's the tragedy of our meaningless. We hold the chain, Arminian in says. We pick it up. But I can assure you that in the first place you wouldn't even pick it up because, as I said, we're spiritually dead. But you could never hold on to that chain when the living God begins to pull. That'd be quite impossible. We sing that so beautifully from the Psalter too, you know, Psalm 72. My hand is in thy hand. Thou carest for me. Arminianism says God's hand is in our hand. We hold on to him. 
the truth of Scripture, as I said in the Psalms, is my hand is in thy hand. God has a hold of us, not we a hold of him. Oh yes, because he holds on to us, then we cling to him too. But don't forget, it is God first. And it's because God reaches down by his Son. And God takes a hold of us in that horrible pit and in that miry clay. God, as Jesus says, no man can pluck us out of his hand. That hand is going to be around our hand. The hand is going to hold us unchangeable. And therefore, our golden chain of salvation will certainly accomplish that which God has set out to do. It will bring us all the way out of that horrible pit and all the way to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. The glory's got to be his. He's going to say that too. We're going to say that when we are pulled out of that pit. We're going to say that as Jonah did. There again, Jonah was wrapped in the weeds in the bottom of the ocean. Hopeless. Couldn't get out. But God did. And then Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. And that's what we're going to do. When we are conformed to the image of his son, we're going to praise him. And it all is exactly in order that he may be the firstborn among many brethren, that the glory may be his. We may only reflect and enjoy his glory. But you see, and I'd like to emphasize that a minute, if I may, notice how in our text the emphasis is entirely, completely on God. There's nothing a man there whom he did foreknow. He did predestinate. He called. He justified. He glorified. Try to find something there that you and I contributed. If you could find something, you can't, but if you could find something, then you might have some room to have doubt as to whether that chain is really going to work. Whether the link won't break or, or whether the power isn't sufficient or whether it isn't attached firmly enough to us. But no, 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 here it is all. He did it, he did it, he did it. God did it. Now let me give you then, beloved, a very simple and yet powerful way. I told these Jamaicans that too, because you have to put things in simple language for them. I says, if you want to know whether a man preaches the truth or preaches the lie, whether he's reformed or whether he's Arminian. Just take note of this. The scriptures from beginning to end always witness and testify to the fact that man needs God. He's dead. God's got to do something to him. He's weak, he's helpless. Even after he's born again, he's got his old flesh to contend with. God has to uphold him. And as Moses says, underneath are the everlasting arms. That's reform. Any man who preaches that man depends completely, entirely upon God for all his natural life, also all his spiritual life. In him we live and move and have our natural being. In him we live and move and have all our spiritual being. 
The minute a man begins to preach, the Armenian does. No matter to what degree it may be, the minute a man begins to say, God needs man, he's off the track, he's Armenian. The Reformed truth says, man needs God for salvation. The Arminian says, God needs man. God made it already. He, he, he made atonement. He made justification possible. He chose a condition. Now you've got to fulfill it. Man's got to fulfill it. You know, that's why you get some of these things. I don't have time to say all this, but I got a letter some time ago from one of the men in, in New Zealand, the group that has asked us to work there. He told about the minister of the church where he went who preached one Sunday on limiting God. Limiting God, maybe. And he said, just think of how many hearts Christ has been knocking on on the door of their heart and he couldn't get in. The sinner wouldn't open and let him in. God needs man. And there's no salvation, the Armenian says, unless man helps God. God may do 99% and man only 1%, but if man doesn't do that 1%, it doesn't happen. Man's is really the deciding choice. He casts a deciding vote. No, 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 that's Arminian. Arminianism always says God needs man. One way or another they say it. Watch for it, young people. Watch for it, children. Anything that says that God needs man denies him his glory. Denies his God. Oh no. This chain designed by the living God and made by the living God will certainly pull us all away from that horrible pit to that beauty and glory of his kingdom. Then we have comfort. And the comfort is exactly in, in our text. What shall we then say to these things? We've got to say something. What are you going to say? When you have a truth like this, God does it all. What are you going to say? This is what you'll have to say. Since God is for us, that if there, by the way, should be sin. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Who can? Nobody. The devil is against us. The devil hates the living God with all his being, and he hates all those who love God. And he will trouble us, he will torment us, he will seek to destroy us in every way he can. Don't worry. Have no fear. God is for us. God's on our side. Oh, it's terrible if he's against you. But Paul says, no, no, no. All this is evidence of the fact that he's for us. He's not against us. He's always working on our behalf. He's always seeking our good. And that's why there are two conclusions we may have. In the first place, because of that truth of the golden chain of salvation, you and I may be absolutely sure that nothing will ever separate us from God's love quite impossible. In fact, Paul says it that way. I am persuaded that neither death nor life and so on and so forth shall be able. Paul doesn't simply say that it won't happen. Paul says there is nothing that is able 
to separate us from God's love. And positively, the very verse with which we began to read this morning, all things are going to work together for our good. Every single one. Oh, it may not look that way. There are things that will hurt. There will be disappointment. But don't forget, our text, as I said at the beginning, our text is exactly the reason for what Paul puts in verse 28. All things work together for good to those that love God. How do you know it? How can you be sure? Well, here it is. God did all this. He foreknew us in love. He predestinated us to everlasting glory. And in order that we might get there and be conformed to the image of His Son, He calls us irresistibly. He justifies us completely, entirely, and everlastingly. And then on the day of Christ, He glorifies our bodies and gives us a whole new creation. God is for us. Let's say that. Nothing can be against us. With uplifted heads, we can walk the rest of our pilgrim's journey, knowing that the chain works. Pretty soon we'll enjoy the blessedness of that work, conformed to the image of God's glorious Son. Amen. Most gracious and eternal God, we thank Thee for Thy Word and its comfort. We pray that it may be applied by the power of Thy Spirit, that we may take it with us, that it may encourage us, that we may stand in awe that all that which Thou hast been pleased to do for us would deserve the very opposite. Forgive the sins we committed in proclaiming Thy Word, Forgive the sins we committed while called to hear it and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask it for our Redeemer's sake alone. Amen.